This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what is an artist? Who is an artist? Perhaps most importantly, what characterizes a Christian artist? For Aristotle, art involves a kind of mimesis, a depiction or representation of nature. It's not hard to notice that many, the many ways in which experience of the natural world has influenced the production of art. Indeed, the beauty of natural things has proven to be one of the most consistent sources of insight for artists of all kinds. However, by tethering the production of art to the experience of nature, Aristotle does not mean that natural objects serve as simple physical models to be copied and reproduced with inanimate realism. Our experience of the many varieties of fine arts belies such an approach. If mimesis is understood as a simple reproduction of visible physical qualities, it will be difficult for non-visible artistic mediums, for example, such as music, to reproduce them without a significant degree of interpretive deviation. If art is understood as the simple representation of qualities experienced by the senses, then such an attempted representation could only be viewed as an artistic failure. You could think as an example here of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. You don't see the seasons, but it's depicted in a, a sensory medium different from the original experience, uh, quite effectively, I, would, I might add. So unlike the reductionistic materialism that characterizes so many early modern and some postmodern accounts of experienced reality, for Aristotle, knowing the nature of something implies a certain ability to abstract from the particulars of experience. To say that we know the nature of something is to say something more than how it was experienced by us. For Aristotle, knowing things according to their natures means knowing them as they are essentially. What is most true of this thing in such a way that it would necessarily play an essential part in any experience or description of the same, the same kind of thing. Both Aristotle and Aquinas use the language of abstraction to describe the relationship between the particularities of experience and the universal truths that animate them. In order to speak about what an experience signifies for another situation or for things more generally, it is necessary to grasp something of what is universal and therefore transferable about a given experience. In his book, Only the Lover Sings, Joseph Pieper argues that true art emerges from seeing reality for what it really is in its deepest sense. For Pieper, this implies more than a simple visual perception of the accidental external properties of physical objects. The dimensions of a shadow cast by a table, for example, the coloration of the sea in a storm or the intonation of a bird song. Although certainly tethered to an experience of nature, this kind of abstraction that Pieper indicates is not a moving away from experience, but rather a recognition, a recognition of what is most essential to our experiences and what this signifies about reality. In this understanding, one can abstract from experience in three ways, analyzing the experience of something in increasingly universal terms, according to physical motion, according to mathematical quantity, and according to being itself. 
these three modalities, classically known as physics, mathematics, and metaphysics, allow the perceiver to grasp the nature of reality with increasing depth and penetration in such a way that in the final stage, a person is able to speak of things not only as they are situated in a given instance in the natural world, but as they are in themselves. For Pieper, the contemplation to which the artist is called is in fact more intensive, a more intensive seeing of reality that constitutes a form of contemplation. Relying on concepts drawn from Plato, Pieper tells us that, quote, art flowing from contemplation does not so much attempt to copy reality as rather to capture the archetypes of all that is. For Pieper, this kind of artistic contemplation is able to penetrate the nature of things at their deepest level in such a way that the universal concepts, or for Plato, universal archetypes, are not merely intuited in a vague or fleeting manner, but are in a sense captured, to use Pieper's language, in such a way that these archetypes themselves, rather than merely the collection of initial sensory impressions that led to their discovery, are what is reproduced in the work of an artist. For Thomas Aquinas, knowing things in themselves in the deepest way is a form of wisdom. Following Aristotle, at the deepest level of metaphysical apprehension, we find ourselves knowing things according to their causes. That is, not only knowing what something is archetypally, but knowing something of its origin and purpose, that which tethers its whatness, you will, to a larger web of meaning. That is, how do you situate the essence in relation to other types of essences, other types of being, ultimately the being of God himself. When the causal pattern that contextualized each created thing and even each created universal concept is traced back to its ultimate source, it will always be God, divine being itself, that stands at the headwaters of all that is. To know things in wisdom is to recognize the implications of this causal pattern in such a way that God himself emerges as what Aquinas will call the cause of causes in question 105 in the Prima Pars. Although creatures do not lose their own causal integrity, this sapiential perspective further contextualizes these causal explanations of the way in which things are with an understanding of God as exemplary cause, that is a cause that gives reason to all forms of created being by explaining what they, why they are at all. Why is there something rather than nothing? I think it's fair to say, however, that not all uh, perspectives on reality are animated by the same type of sapiential approach to the whole. And so to frame the relevance of a Thomistic perspective for a contemporary world, I'd like to take a detour, if you will, into post-modernity, and hopefully we can find our way back out again, back to the idea, <laughs> back to the idea of exemplary causality uh, and the idea of wisdom ordering our perception of formality and ultimately of being. So, but for now, a brief detour. So what should reality look like? What sh who should the human person be? What should artistic production look like? For Aquinas, as we've seen, the answers to these questions are found in a sapiential grasp of the principles that give intelligibility to reality as a whole. Although Aquinas values experience, beginning his noetic investigation of reality from its data, 
and returning to the medium of experience in moral action and artistic production. The principles that give intelligibility to experience in both of these senses is ultimately accessed by an abstraction towards that which is more universal. Although it's not always necessary to impose an absolute dichotomy between classical and contemporary approaches to the fine arts or other forms of more practical arts as well by extension, it is sometimes remarked that the transition from classical to modern art has been marked in many ways by a movement away from realism and towards abstractionism or surrealism. Such characterizations admit of exceptions, of course, and are not always helpful in all cases. Nevertheless, it seems uncontroversial, I would propose, to claim that postmodernity has produced unique approaches to art, which in many cases stand in notable contrast, at least it seems, to their classical and early, early modern predecessors. Although a tendency to abstractionism uh, in the paintings of the later Picasso, for example, or those of Jackson Pollock can easily be identified, I would argue that it is not abstraction from experienced reality itself that differentiates these perspectives from the classical Thomistic approach, but rather the way in which the task of abstraction is positioned in relation to experience. So, different definitions of, abstract, of abstraction. We have here a kind of return, perhaps ironically, in postmodern art to abstraction, although this time we find, I would propose, an askewal of form rather than an embrace of it. Because deontological approaches to reality have stripped form of its metaphysical and causal density, in which teleology and perfectibility are intrinsically tied to the transcendental concepts, such as being, goodness, and truth, form is left uh, essentially reduced to a convention or an arbitrary and restrictive one at that, from whence do conventions of this kind originate, where form in creation and artistic production in the classical Thomistic sense traces its analogical roots to the objectivity and eternity of the divine essence itself, the collapse of the false confidence of modernity in its own rationalisms and objectifications leaves postmodernity with little to tether the subjectivity of experience. If there are conventions, they are the product of cultural consensus at best. At worst, they are the impositions of a dominant elite to the disadvantage and disempowerment of others. Challenging these conventions, therefore, becomes its own kind of moral imperative. An abstraction from these conventions becomes a means of maintaining a sense of the freedom and autonomy of the person in relation to these impositions and constructions. Interestingly, a parallel between the moral imperative, if you will, to deconstruct these social conventions and the impulse towards abstraction in some forms of postmodern artistic production, uh, which challenge the conventions of music theory uh, or aesthetics of visual proportion. So there's a parallel between the, the moral imperative right, um, and the, the, abs the tendency to abstraction itself, it seems to me, I propose. So modern and postmodern concepts of reality have challenged the metaphysical underpinnings of experience, characterizing metaphysics as an artificial imposition. For Heidegger, for example, the truth of experience presents us with what is real in the most immediate sense. The disconnect between experience and speculative categories within post-Kantian iterations of modern thought have made it difficult for many to articulate a connection between morality 
and a speculative grasp of the real. Rather than relying on a metaphysical sense of wisdom to impart principles to the acting person who then translate these, these principles into concrete choices and actions through the use of practical reason, Kant's categorical approach to moral imperatives relies on the personal will uh, of the one proposing the imperative. In his groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, uh, published in 1785, Kant argues that human action should only be conducted according to principles or imperatives that are not only desirable in certain specific situations, but can be put forward as universal imperatives as well. Despite Kant's own lingering confidence in the possibility of universal moral norms, his deontological approach to the possibility of this same universality would effectively undermine the practical accessibility of these same imperatives for later post-Kantian continental thinkers, uh, the risk of generalizing the intellectual history of the West. You can see a sort of collapse here of objectivity within the trajectory of uh, a kind of volitional approach to universals, uh, a, a type of voluntarism, uh, at least in a broad sense. So interestingly, um, perhaps building on themes within Kant himself, aesthetics would remain an important category for later German thinkers, particularly Friedrich Nietzsche, although many others as well. Uh, so for Kant himself, an important connection remains, however, between aesthetics and the concept of teleology, or the directedness of a being towards an end. So it is a, it, this is from his Critique of Judgment, 1790, uh, which is published after the Critique of Pure Reason, uh, both editions. Uh, so Kant, in the Critique of Judgment, in fact provides a perhaps surprisingly robust uh, account of beauty and the means by which something can be judged to be beautiful. In the first section of this work, titled The Analytic of the Beautiful, if anyone can ruin beauty, it'll be Kant, right? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so in this set, Kant argues that the beauty, that beauty, rather, is distinct from personal taste and other more empirical judgments about the goodness of one thing or another, uh, and that it can be assessed in a universally applicable manner. It seems, at least, uh, broadly speaking, that uh, his convictions were not convincing for all. Nietzsche, for example, and other later post-Kantians would characterize the dynamic between individuation and universality in different terms. Um, and here you see a kind of shift. How do you find your way back from Nietzsche, for example, uh, from Nietzsche's aesthetics? Um, not easily, but one is by appreciating the way in which universality and subjectivity are positioned in a different sense, yeah, particularly by Nietzsche. Um, so, okay, so a little bit from the birth of tragedy. Um, again, bear with me, we'll, we'll make our way back, I promise, to Aquinas. Okay. So in The Birth of Tragedy, Friedrich Nietzsche describes a balance of artistic insight and experience that was struck during a particular period of Greek history, when a confluence of factors coalesced in such a way that a new artistic synthesis emerged in the form of Attic tragedy. So for Nietzsche, Apollo and Dionysius, both of whom he names as gods of art, form a kind of thematic tension that extends well beyond the bounds of Greek mythology and the historical evolutions of Greek culture and thought. In one sense, Nietzsche's aims here are descriptive, recounting what was. In another sense, they are proscriptive. Although it may not be possible to recover tragedy as it was, Nietzsche argues, prior to the Socratic turn, uh, nevertheless, it can serve to remind us, that is, recovering some awareness, at least, of what was, 
that can serve to remind us not only of what was, but what could be again, at least in some sense. So Nietzsche effectively is attempting to recall society to his characterization of a pre-Socratic ideal of Greek tragedy, in which you have this thematic balance of these two art worlds. So for Nietzsche, art, rather, rather than morality, forms the foundation of life and of reality itself. Art comprises the highest category for human activity and experience, and is not superseded by any pre-existing philosophical categories, moral or metaphysical. In this, Nietzsche prizes the creative powers of the person himself, who, once awoken to his ability, is able to craft things, and indeed life itself, as an artist, in truth, as a god. So divinity itself is transferred into the subjectivity of the human person in all of its um, purported creative force. All of that is now contained within subjectivity itself. So reflecting on his early work in The Birth of Tragedy in 1886, Nietzsche associates the impulse toward morality with a hostility towards life itself, which when hardened with an undue sense of objectivity and universality, comes to view the aesthetic approach to life as simply lies. In a seeming paradox, Nietzsche claims that art is more real and more accurate than claims of truth. So if, tr if reality isn't about truth, or at least isn't about truth claims, it's certainly about artistic expression. And morality, when it's reduced to um, uh, legalistic uh, Kantian claims, we might say, uh, is at variance with this kind of aesthetic. Um, Kant himself might agree with that to a certain extent. Um, so Nietzsche finds the most authentic point of contact with the real in what some might see as the distortions of a cramped subjectivity, preferring the term life to more static categories such as being or metaphysics. Nietzsche believes that life is most fully appreciated through the prismatic lens of art, even of deception a lens which does not deny its own perspectival quality. Although his emphasis on life may be reminiscent of other modern turns to the subject, Nietzsche's approach is not dependent on a classical account of the distinction between subject and object. So a little bit more about the distinction between subject and object here for Nietzsche and how he's cashing that out. Because I think sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that he's he and others like him are thinking about subjectivity in the same way that we might ourselves from a Thomistic perspective. That is, subjectivity is something which encounters the objective, which encounters being outside of itself. So in The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche's approach to subjectivity is strongly formed by Schopenhauer's world as will and representation. Nietzsche likens the Apolline man to the one who, for Schopenhauer, is trapped in the veil of Maya. He quotes Schopenhauer, who describes a boatman sitting calmly in a small, frail boat in the midst of a raging sea that extends indefinitely in all directions. The sea rises and falls, and the wind howls, threatening the tiny craft that is, at least for the present, still adrift on its surface. The boatman remains calm, even in the midst of a world heaving and convulsed with all forms of sorrow and human misery. The boat which supports him is the principle of individuation, and the boatman's calm comes from his utter trust in this principle. One fears his trust may be misplaced, however, uh, or at least unable to preserve him from the crash of the larger waves. 
Schopenhauer's understanding of the principle of individuation is the context, in this context, uh, is related to the human experience of things as separate and individuated. Our ability to name something as distinct, in a sense, rests on the principle of sufficient reason, at least according to Schopenhauer. Uh, so these appearances yield ultimately to a reality in which all individuation is in fact an illusion, a mere appearance. Just a brief note on the, uh, the principle of individuation and the principle of sufficient reason. There's an awful lot of post-Kantian German idealism behind all of this. So the idea that uh, the principle of sufficient reason is what can save realism, for instance, that is, as long as I can produce uh, a sufficiently reasonable argument for something, there, there's a reality behind it. These are ideas that like Christian Wolff and others um, in the early modern period propagated extensively. Even Catholic theology assimilated many of these ideas, not Thomistic theology, uh, mind you. But um, nonetheless, um, you, you see here the kind of um, the collapse of a very fragile and artificial um, modern rationalism into a subjectivity which is consuming itself, basically. And the boatman, balanced calmly on the waves, has an overconfidence right. uh, in the, uh, the durability of his craft. If the boat itself is the, con the construct uh, of some form of, of personal identity out of subjectivity, it's going to be subsumed by the waves. It's kind of dark. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, but it, it's worth mentioning, I think, uh, just, uh, to take an aside here, because uh, I think whether or not we, um, we realize it, most of us have imbibed a great deal of post-modernity post in our own formation, um, just in the air we breathe. And giving some intellectual form to it can show us how, for instance, these ideas are really shaping um, a lot of approaches to art, and uh, particularly the connection between art and morality. Why is there such a, a tension between art and morality? Uh, why can't they be in harmony effectively? So, what I'm hoping to propose over the next few days, beginning today, but particularly working into tomorrow, is that the teleology of the moral act for Aquinas um, is not in tension with aesthetics. In fact, far, far to the contrary. Uh, the two work in tandem. The production of art and the moral act are not identical, um, but they are, they are in harmony, uh, and they're in contact with the same world of forms and ultimately the exemplarity of the divine nature. Uh, which renders intelligible all of those things, both the artist and his production. So let's turn back, start to turn back towards uh, the classical tradition. So if we were to contrast uh, that radically subjective approach to a Thomistic approach, uh, we'd find a number of points of contrast. So, um, so several observations can be made about the aspects of Nietzsche's uh, thought that we've studied here. So first, Nietzsche's trajectory is very much universalizing in spite of himself. It's not the kind of universality you want, uh, but there is a, a desire for the universal, even if it's, it's a threat to the subject, right? Okay, so despite his turn to the subject, it is, an, it, a, it is an aesthetic approach that allows the seeming divide between subjectivity and universality to be bridged through the creation of symbols and myth, uh, which convene the knowledge of universality that has been gleaned from the Dionysian drive with sufficient plasticity to allow for further fits of creative growth, in which myth allows itself to be destroyed and remade with a newness of form that remains in close contact with the heart of reality itself, without ever claiming that its art products are exhaustive of what they represent. Further, 
although the concept of universality lends stability and even kind of objectivity to these myths, properly filtered through the inherently perspectival nature of the artistic drives, the teleology towards universality that can be identified in the aesthetic sensibilities indicated here, along with the art products and symbols, uh, symbolic concepts they produce, does not take its directedness from the traditional metaphysical concepts of the transcendentals. So Nietzsche's aesthetic cannot be said to be ordered according to beauty or goodness. It is purely will in the end, and perhaps nature, if that means anything at all anymore, uh, which undergirds this process. I think, um, again, to transition back to a Thomistic perspective, uh, what we can take away from this is that it's not just a combination of will plus aesthetics. Uh, there's a need for metaphysical realism. There's a deep poverty in these perspectives, um, however powerful they might have been in modern culture, or however powerful they may remain even today. Uh, metaphysical realism gives something that uh, will plus aesthetics doesn't, because will alone wasn't enough to save Kant from the collapse right, uh, into subjectivity. So returning to a sapiential perspective, so for Aquinas, the contours of God's causal exemplarity are established and known by means of the, of the language of analogy. Here again, uh, we have the beginning of uh, what I've, I said at the outset would be uh, sort of the language of sign. So when we think about aesthetics and appearance, a sign is either a sign, again, it's a gesture to the past, a naming of the present, or a gesture to the future. And so Aquinas is going to use that language to talk about God effectively. Uh, but for our purposes, it's worth noting that it's also an aesthetic language. It's a language of how appearances lead into the deeper heart of reality. So in question 13 of the Summa Theologiae, after establishing God's existence as simple, self-subsistent being, Aquinas turns his attention to naming the further attributes that can be attributed to the divine essence. Here, Aquinas gives greater color and specificity to our knowledge of divine being. Here again, Aquinas transcends the particularities of aesthetic experience by asking his student to move beyond the language of metaphor and to embrace the concept of participatory analogy. Despite the utility and literary diversity of metaphorical speech, Aquinas points out that metaphors help us to understand unknown things by likening them to things better known. So the unfamiliar animal, for example, was as large as a bear but as quiet as a cat, for example. Although the unfamiliar animal remains unexperienced, something of it is known, to a certain degree, by means of comparison with things already known. Although effective in its own way, the knower is not actually drawn towards the unknown thing, or told what it is essentially. The knower is simply reminded of what the knower already knows, for the most part. In this way, despite its usefulness, the language of metaphor does not actually transcend our existing experience of things. Using the language of analogy, Aquinas proposes that transcendental properties such as truth, unity, and goodness, although predictable, all predicable rather, of all being to some extent, are said most essentially and most accurately of God himself. For Aquinas, although the divine essence is radically simple, these so-called divine names correspond to the way in which our intellects are able to articulate the perfections that exist in the simple unity of God. Unlike metaphor, analogy enables participation. 
By knowing these truths, we recognize the degree to which our created contingent being already participates in a proportionate share of these perfections and the degree to which our own participation in truth and goodness might increase as well. So here again, you have this type of um, analogy as a participatory reality in which signs themselves, or let's say aesthetic experience, uh, yields to uh, a real encounter with being. So there's a metaphysical realism behind aesthetics for Aquinas, uh, which supplements and completes and uh, really fixes uh, some of the problems uh, within modern perspectives that you get from, uh, from other sources. Okay. Um, so the Italian philosopher Umberto Eco argues that during the Middle Ages, a sapiential and transcendent understanding of creation framed an analogical relationship with the divine, animated and permeated many diverse aspects of medieval culture, animating the medieval mind with what he calls, quote, an aesthetic vision of things. So it's precisely this type of approach to analogy and being, or the analogy of being, we might call it, uh, that allows for uh, a kind of aesthetic animation of our appreciation of reality, at least according to Umberto Eco. Eco notes the importance of the Bible uh, itself in this regard, which offered the Christian mind a clear appreciation of the beauty of creation as an experience, an expression, rather, of the goodness of the divine will. Eco calls particular attention to the influence of chapter 11 of the Book of Wisdom. Quote, But you, Lord, have disposed all things by measure and number and weight. That's chapter 11, verse 20, if you're interested. From this verse, according to Echo, St. Augustine derived his own sense of beauty as a kind of mode, or perhaps more accurately, a dimension or quantity, uh, and as form and as order. So beauty as mode, form, and order, at least for St. Augustine, Echo traces this to the Bible. So there's a kind of metaphysical realism, at least in Echo's account, at work in scripture itself. Although this threefold division would broadly influence medieval and scholastic accounts of created being, at times being applied by, medieval, by the medievals to goodness as a transcendental, at other times uh, to beauty itself as a transcendental property. Uh, but the, imp the impulse, rather, to consider beauty as a transcendental is no doubt Platonic in origin. Uh, Plato himself was not well known uh, in the Middle Ages uh, an exception to this, of course, is his Timaeus and a handful of other works, perhaps, uh, which were well known to scholastic and pre-scholastic um, thinkers in the medieval West. But we know, for instance, that Timaeus was in circulation uh, and was also influential for Peter Lombard. So we'll come back to that in the third section. Uh, but in the Timaeus, as you may know, uh, Plato describes a kind of creation, um, a kind of act of artistic creation where the demiurge, who's not God, but is, you know, Plato's creator, say, is creating things, material things, visible things, based on archetypes using matter. So you have three things, demiurge, matter, and the forms. Um, but moving beyond Plato himself, however, Neoplatonism and its various Christian forms, um, the wide variety of those forms that provided the medieval and scholastic mind um, with a transcendental vocabulary for beauty, uh, inspired, broadly speaking, by Plato himself. The Egyptian philosopher Plotinus, for example, uh, was born in Egypt in a, about the year 204 AD. Uh, so there, uh, notably, uh, he intersects with Christianity. He wasn't a Christian himself, uh, but there's a lot of dispute about how um, 
how much influence uh, or how much sort of cross-pollination there was uh, in those years. He was in Alexandria for, for quite a long time uh, and then in Rome. So concerning the topic of, of, of aesthetic beauty, Plotinus himself has a great deal to say that would prove influential not only for Christian thinkers in the patristic period, but in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance as well. Uh, so, for example, in Aeneid uh, 1, that's 1 1.6, uh, Plotinus' uh, aesthetics is dominated by the concept of beauty. Uh, at the outset, Plotinus frames his approach to beauty in sensory terms, emphasizing the primacy of sight where beauty is concerned. He notes that there can be a certain beauty that is available to the ears as well. Music has the capacity to be beautiful in both its melody and its cadence. In addition, to, the, to these sensory experiences of beauty, Plotinus notes that the mind has the capacity to elevate itself beyond the sensory world in order to function in a more purely intellectual fashion. One of the most problematic aspects of Neoplatonic approaches to the relationship between visual aesthetics and ontological participation, however, is the seeming, at least at times, equation between being and beauty. So whether or not you consider beauty itself to be a transcendental, um, within uh, raw Neoplatonism, let's say, non-Christian Neoplatonism, the concern for the act of divine creation from nothing is not, uh, not taken into account. So for the Christian tradition, rather, uh, maintaining the distinction between God's being and the sense of being that can be attributed to creatures is of paramount importance. Among Christian Neoplatonists, a hesitancy to adopt an unmodified version of Plotinus's ontology and aesthetics would manifest itself almost immediately. So perhaps one of the most influential uh, texts of this genre would be the divine names of Pseudo-Dionysius, who he's writing in the sixth, uh, into the uh, fifth to the sixth century, rather. So in chapter four, for example, of the divine names, Dionysius describes the analogical relationship between God and creatures using beauty as a kind of transcendental property that is seemingly convertible with the concept of being itself to a certain extent. Dionysius implies, seemingly, that beauty transcends the category of being itself, distinguishing between that which is beautiful and beauty itself, the latter being something that stands beyond being and imparts beauty to each created thing in a way that is proportioned to each thing, resulting in a kind of harmony or consonance, consonantiae, or splendor and clarity, the claritas, that Aquinas will speak about as well, in all things. Broadly speaking here, some of the, um, a lot of this depends on what you mean by the term being, uh, whether or not you mean it to apply to God as well. As I think uh, I'll try to establish in the, the time remaining, you don't want a univocal application of being, as if God is just a bigger being than other beings, or a bigger version of the same thing. Uh, but here you see, even in, in Dionysius, uh, a kind of um, a hesitancy about using the word at all to talk about God. But he's perfectly willing to use beauty, uh, perhaps the, the influence of Plato. Here. So, Okay, so in this account, claritas, uh, the proportionate ordering imparted by beauty itself, two beautiful things, is likened to the diffusion of light, which bestows something of its own beauty on those things that participate in it. Further, the Dionysius, uh, for Dionysius, the identification of beauty and created things, that is, calling something beautiful in some aspect, has the effect not only of calling to mind the concept of beauty, but of actively recalling all things to its source. Speaking of created beauty, therefore, seems to have a participatory effect 
for Dionysius. So at least in this approach, to simply speak of beauty has the effect of, of drawing you deeper into the analogy of being, uh, if we use the language of the Thomistic tradition. From this much, it is clear that for Dionysius, the concept of beauty is fully integrated into the analogy of being itself in such a way that the concept of beauty can be used not only to describe created being and the transcendental properties found therein, but the very source of these same properties in God himself. Even here, however, um, Christian Neoplatonism would be modified by the subsequent scholastic tradition. Uh, we can see this particularly in Peter Lombard in his sentences, where he takes up the topic of creation in book two. And um, he, he sets Plato and Aristotle next to each other, basically, and says, there's a little bit right about this one and a little bit right about this one. And I'm going to take what I like about, about each one and move forward. Um, but particularly concerning the, concerning the Platonic tradition, um, we see Peter Lombard engaging the tensions uh, between Aristotle and Plato, uh, again, in book two. So he cites Plato's Timaeus, uh, again, a text which was widely circulated during the Middle Ages, unlike many of Plato's other dialogues. Um, but Lombard cites the Timaeus and argues that in this text, Plato fails to trace the origin of created reality to a single first principle, positing instead three separate principles, God, or what Plato calls the demiurge, the exemplar forms and that the demiurge uses to create visible things and matter itself. So in Lombard's assessment, Plato does not resolve the tension between these three principles in a way that can successfully yield a metaphysics compatible with Christian revelation. So you have, um, if you have a type of metaphysical realism in the Bible itself, that is in the portrayal of beauty in the scriptural word itself, you have attempts in uh, Christian Platonism or Christian Neoplatonism to articulate the, the transcendental quality of beauty. So how does a, the perception of beauty as an aesthetic experience, how does it draw you into the heart of reality? Can it do that? Uh, is it capable of doing that? Can it have that abstract quality, right, where we're able to transition from one experience to universals and then back down to experience? Uh, because if so, um, it has the ability to create, or to function at least, as the motivation for creation on the part of, of a human artist. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about God and human artists here in the next section, uh, so I don't want to skip ahead. But um, if it has that transcendental quality, it can also affect production. Um, because you end up producing something more than just a copy of what you've seen. Not all pictures of things are art, right? Uh, if you open up the newspaper and see a picture of something, I mean, it might be artistic, but it's probably just a picture. Right, uh, it's just a, a representation of something else that's not there. It's a sign. It's a visual sign, but there's nothing particularly artistic about it. Um, ferreting out what makes something artistic and what doesn't uh, is something we can uh, maybe we can talk about in the discussion section today or in the days to come. But um, the important thing that I want to highlight here is that that um, abstraction is not the enemy of art. Right, uh, that metaphysics is not the enemy of art that a, a real sense of, of metaphysical realism and the abstraction necessary to achieve it actually enables artistic creativity uh, and an interpretive approach, which says something meaningful about what's true, uh, as opposed to just presenting you with an image of what, what is in a different place, but not near. Okay, okay so Lombard is moving to, to reassert um, something, uh, what we would call the kind of um, metaphysical realism of scripture itself and of revelation within this uh, long-standing tradition within the medieval West. 
so transcendentals and abstraction, it's, that's great. Uh, that provides an alternative to uh, some modern perspectives. But what I'd like to propose is that Aquinas himself has a far more, a far more mature and well-developed understanding of human agency and divine agency using the language of causality, where we can really talk about two different types of artistry functioning in conjunction with each other. God is an artist in creation and in sustaining creation, but then also the human person is a kind of artistic agent. Um, and that could apply to the fine arts, but it most fundamentally in the causal sense that Aquinas means, it's gonna to apply to, to human agency itself, to just being human uh, and to acting in a way which is perfective of human nature. Uh, that's the most fundamental sense of human artistry, you might say, that Aquinas identifies. So Aquinas on divine and human artistry. So previously, uh, we've established that for Aquinas, knowing things according to their causes ultimately allows us to know things in relation to God and to see the analogical pattern according to which the intelligibility of creation is fashioned. Possessing this vision makes us philosophers of a kind, that is, persons who have made themselves lovers of wisdom, philosophia, and have come into a kind of possession of that which they love. However, to be an artist is something distinct from simply identifying as a philosopher in some sense. In his Nicomachean Ethics and elsewhere, you can see book six of the, of the Ethics, Aristotle tells us that the production of art is a kind of creation that is characterized by a lack of necessity and a conformity to truth. Art is not necessary, and yet it is not arbitrary. It comes as a fresh manifestation of what is already known to be true. As we have already established, to know the truth is the most accurate and universal sense uh, one, um, uh, of when one abstracts from particularities of experience, knowing things in wisdom according to their causes. So for Aristotle, the concept of artistry is tied directly to this kind of wisdom about the most fundamental truths of reality. For Aquinas, exemplary causality effectively means that the word cause can only be said of God himself in the full sense. Although said truthfully and accurately of creatures, no created cause can effectively contain the whole significance of the term cause without implicitly referencing God himself as the ultimate cause of all that is. As we have seen, this is true not only of the initial production of created being, but of its continued governance as well. Although phenomena such as physical motion in the natural world may seem self-sufficient, the teleology of the causal process that fully explains such phenomena must in the end lead back to a recognition of God who is the cause of all causes. By insisting against Plato and with Peter Lombard that created being terminated in one ultimate principle rather than three, in his commentary on the sentences, Aquinas is able to characterize all causality as instrumental in some sense, because in the final analysis, the origin of all natural motion is traceable to the causal power of God. Ultimately, it is the analogical contouring of this causal vocabulary uh, that gives Aquinas the ontological justification to speak of divine uh, and created versions of artistry. With these concepts in the background, when he describes God's act of creation in his sentences commentary, Aquinas, is, Aquinas uses the language of artistry explicitly. 
You can find this in the Summa also in question 44 of the Prima Clause. Although God's exemplarity clearly functions as a kind of supreme formal cause, in this case, there is also a sense in which this same divine exemplarity can be understood as a kind of efficient cause as well. So Aquinas makes a distinction here, uh, which is helpful, and it's super clear in the sentences commentary, although he makes it in a similar way in the Summa, uh, between God's, ca God's causal responsibility for what the, the creature has in, in itself, ad habentum tantum, like what does the creature have from God, according to nature? And then uh, what can the creature do, we might say, right? Uh, so per modem uh, communi uh, exemplary efficiency. So that's, there's, a, there's an efficient mode uh, or a common mode of, of efficient exemplarity. So exemplary causality in this sense isn't just about formality. It's not just about archetypes. It's about efficient motion on God's part too, or at least his causal responsibility for motion and creation. And it's responsible not only for um, the fact that something is, it's also responsible for what those things do. So with simpler beings, uh, well, like rocks, for instance, this dynamic is uninteresting, I would propose. Um, uh, there's not much going on. In fact, there's no in intrinsic motion in a rock. It's just sitting around. Other animals, things get a little more interesting, a little more complex. Uh, for human activity, uh, you're dealing with a rational creature who has the volitional ability to act as a self-mover uh, and a, as a cause of their own activity. But even there, Aquinas is going to extend the efficient exemplarity of the divine nature to that activity. Just to conclude, uh, when we look at the um, the type of, of creature that the human person is, there are some clues in the prima pars of the Summa which help us to understand who we are, right? Because when Aquinas is laying out this sapiential vision of creation, he has in mind already where he wants to go. What does he want to say about who the human person is? How does he want to talk about redemption in Christ? So um, the human person for Aquinas is an image of God. And what he means specifically by that is that the human person as reasonable, that is possessed of, of intellect and will, is a special image of the divine. All other created things are the likeness of the divine. So the language of sign, the language of the analogy of being, the language of aesthetics and exemplarity, all those concepts that we've been talking about, when you start talking about the human person, there's something special going on there. And it's called image, right? The, the human person is an image, not just of the divine essence, but of the trinity. Uh, the Trinitarian persons. So he sets this up, he introduces the word person for the first time uh, when talking about the Trinity, uh, questions 27 and 28. And then even before he starts talking about the human person properly in the Secunda Pars, already in question 42 and 43, he's going to want to talk uh, directly about um, what the Trinity is going to do uh, to the rational image. And we find the invisible missions of the Trinity, uh, the the second and third persons, the Son and the Holy Spirit, animating the faculties of intellect and will. Um, we'll talk more tomorrow about the um, the way in which the rational person comes to be an, an actor, you know, uh, a kind of productive actor, someone responsible in, our, in an artistic fashion for their own actions and also possibly for aesthetic productions. But it's important to note that already here in the Prima Pars, Aquinas has set up, if you will, the end. He's, he's already shown where he wants to go, and it's indwelling. It's Trinitarian indwelling. And if we understand that, we have to also say something. It, I think for our purposes here, it's important to see that it, it means saying something special about the way that language, the, the language of sign and the analogy of being is, is being applied to the unique status of the human person, right? I guess I'm wondering, 
I, I'm tempted, and maybe I should confess this, uh, to uh, play devil's advocate for Nietzsche, right? Oh, okay, all right. And, uh, <laughs> there's something about uh, aesthetics uh, in his reading of aesthetics yeah. that has a priority uh, for us, right? The adult distinction, and I know it's the mystic one, but it gets on to it, that it's, uh, that it's Aristotelian, I suppose. There's what's first for us, and there's what's first for the things. Yep. And I think Nietzsche is right in insisting that aesthetics is, has a priority for us. So for his turn to poetry, to Nietzsche, well, I want, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you could want to sort of, what do you make of that, I guess, yep. but yeah, also yeah. what place has music for Thomas, right? Because yeah. if, we, if we take <clears throat> Nietzsche, he understands music much differently than uh, Thomas would have think, uh, at least at the level of liberal arts. Yeah. Right? Because um, as, you, as you said so eloquently, there's motion mathematics and then metaphysics, right? There's physics, math, physics. And for them, uh, music is a branch of math. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of yeah. quadrivial. Uh, <laughs> but for, but, uh, and, I, and I know Thomas knows this, so I'm not, I'm not trying to put it down. But right for the ancient poets, or for Nietzsche, presumably, um, music of which poetry is a part, mm -hmm. is one of the arts dedicated to muses, uh, is much higher than proportion or the study thereof. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm sure that's why I ask, because I'm not as familiar with Thomas as I am with uh, Plato or Aristotle. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he knows this, and so, like, what would it, one, how do you, how do you, what do you think about aesthetics in terms yeah. of priority? And also, um, music is something higher than the liberal art of music would yeah. suggest. That yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, as, as I, I'm sure you know, you know, Nietzsche is a big fan of Wagner, you know, yes. and uh, there's, uh, the music takes on, uh, as, you're, as you're indicating, right, for him, a sort of, um, it's the, the purest form of art, in a sense, right? It really is just uh, the, the best possible form of art. It's interesting, just as, as an aside, you know, you notice in other uh, postmodern accounts of art, uh, actually I think we were talking about this at, at dinner the other night, yeah, yeah, but uh, we, um, if you look at Heidegger's uh, origin of the work of art, and the later Heidegger, sure. you know, he's gonna talk about, uh, it's really visual art, really. Uh, if any of you have ever read that or been forced to read it, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he's got Van Gogh's shoes, he spends a lot of time staring at Van Gogh's shoes, or a painting of Van Gogh's shoes, right? But it's, um, the point is that it's, it, but that's a painting, right? Uh, so the highest form of, of aesthetic expression, really, I think implicitly, yeah. is there's visual art, but also then uh, poetry, the written word that he would say. Um, so I, I think, I, I mentioned that just to say, I think there's some, I think there's some confusion over there, and I would almost say something arbitrary uh, from within the subjectivity of postmodernity and naming one is better than the other. I mean, what, what exactly makes music better than poetry? I mean, I, the, those systems of thought don't work uh, if you if you don't um, latch onto one or the other at a certain at a certain level. But I'm not sure, uh, at least in my exposure to it, that uh, there's there's a ratio that, that can can really say that music is, has that priority. I mean, I, that's maybe that's uh, a cop out. But uh, um, I think in terms of a, oh yeah, uh, oh no, yeah, I mean right yeah. back to the ancients, the Plato, yeah. Aristotle, both. Yeah, music's better than poetry. There we go. What are you talking about? Yeah, they, yeah, you, yeah. I mean, they don't. We think of Homer yeah. as words on a page. Yeah, they, yeah. They'd be like, what are you, no. what are you talking about? Yes, yeah, we can recite Homer, yeah, yeah, but that's not really Homer yeah. if you're not yeah. chanting it. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, not, that's not really Aeschylus. We're not. Yeah. Not the yeah. Theater and yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think um, one of the issues I tried to raise here was that sometimes I think uh, there can be a certain if you're coming from a perspective of metaphys meta metaphysical realism, which I hope you are. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there can be a certain naivete when encountering some of these thought worlds and thinking that they think about objectivity and subjectivity in the same way that we do. That's actually not entirely accurate, right? Like the whole like there's uh, there's an objectivity to subjectivity. Because I mean, Heidegger's big about collapsing the categories, right? There there is no object outside of yourself. It's just experience. Uh, that's a little bit of a oversimplification, but he's uh, the distance between subject and object. That's a big theme in being in time, where he really just he just doesn't like that. Uh, now, um, as a sidebar, he. Um, he, he had a lot of scholastic influence in his early, like his original thesis, or maybe it was his habilitation, was on SCOTUS, you know, so there, there's an awful lot of statistic metaphysics going on there. Note also, uh, there's no real analogy of being in SCOTUS, right? So like what he's what he's reacting against, what he's saying, the metaphysics, uh, substance, accidents, Socratic language, it's all bad. Uh, he's most likely talking about a statistic read of all that. So. Um, S.J. McGrath wrote a book about, about this, uh, Metaphysics of the Early Heidegger, I think it's the title, um, but uh, about being in time and sort of the uh, statistic influence and the analogy of being it's super interesting. But there's definitely some room to kind of um, propose a Thomistic alternative, even if uh, we don't really share too many first principles with some of these thought worlds, so it can be hard, it can be hard to form a dialectic sometimes, but one way to do it is to propose an alternative, right? And so you see it this way, well, uh, you haven't considered <laughs> A metaphysically realist account of analogy, for instance, uh, what would that look like? Yeah. Which is a little bit of what, what I, I tried to do here. But um, to maybe uh, I don't know if I've answered your question or not. But uh, I think um, how Meister responded to it. Yeah, yeah. So because uh, aesthetics is right. I mean, I I would ultimately think that Thomas would say, sure, uh, Nietzsche, you're right about aesthetics, but why aren't you bothering to move beyond? Right? Uh, like he would say, yeah. there is a yeah, so I think, uh, I do think that a metaphysically realist account um, of the person uh, and the, tele the teleology of the person is going to disrupt some of the, um, like the, the art world dichotomy in Nietzsche. I'm not sure that can stand, you know, <laughs> uh, not just because it's uh, morally problematic in some ways, <laughs> but uh, because um, it really represents um, what is the objectivity underlying that? Is there a truth to human action, uh, or are there just different sort of modes or seasons uh, that sort of collide, or, or different impulses? I think uh, there you have a, an account of humanity, which is really, again, to, to lapse—not to lapse, but to, to, to move back into the world of Aristotle and Aquinas—it's really just a conversation at the level of the passions. There's a deep suspicion of the intellect's ability to attain universals and to say something true about the real. Uh, and that's that's sort of that's sort of bad. So what are you left with anthropologically? Well, it's the passions, basically. Um, yeah, I mean that's certainly the Dionysian impulse. Uh, but even the Apollonian stuff, um, he just describes it as a kind of artistic uh, structuring of experience and that sort of thing. It's not it's not the same thing as the speculative or even the practical intellect for Aquinas. So I think um, I think a, a Thomistic account of, of the person. In, in proper analogical terms, is going to have to disrupt some of those uh, things, you know. Absolutely. But I, I do think it's, um, yeah, it, it just says a lot about postmodernity. I think you know to uh, um, to see how and how 
how important subjectivity is uh, for these thinkers and how it's been kind of repositioned, we might say, right? In a way that is a bit unfamiliar to Thomas, uh, rightly so, it's a good thing. But, um, and to start to think about how we might propose a constructive alternative you know, from within the Thomistic tradition, which is a living thing. Uh, Thomism isn't, uh, it's not historical, it's not history of philosophy, right? Uh, if, you, if you know anything of the division, uh, theology does this too sometimes, like historical theology or whatever, which is just a way of saying we're studying someone else's theology in the past, right? Uh, it, could be, it could mean that at least. Or history of philosophy, we're not doing philosophy, but we're talking about what philosophers used to do. You know, um, the, a living tradition is able to say something to the present, you know, uh, so that's really what, what Thomism is. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So I have a question about how art can be a revelation of truth. Yeah, yeah. As I, as I understand it, artistic creation is participation in God's creation, where the image of God, so as God creates, so we create so God's image. Um, can, is, do you believe that artistic creation is actually a way that we can know and reveal God in a way that we couldn't just through the natural world, that there's this element in human making that participates in um, this kind of higher, higher divine pattern mm -hmm. um, and can move us God, mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's like the goal of art ultimately? That's a great question. So I think the first thing to note, um, I was kind of um, getting into towards the end here, and we'll have a chance to come back to this tomorrow, is the, the idea that all human acts, right, that uh, when, when a human acts, when, when I act or you act, there's, um, Aquinas will use the, the metaphor or analogy of artistry to talk about what that means, in the sense that when an artist builds a house or an architect, right, uh, how does he go about it? He's got material, uh, but then there's the formal cause in the mind. And that's kind of what drives the selection of the end and the, the, ch the choosing of means to achieve that end. So how do I, what kind of tools am I going to use? You know, how am I going to get myself started? Uh, and so on and so forth. And um, all that's so that, you, the language of causality can be understood with the metaphor of artistry. And so anyway, so Aquinas is going to use that to describe human artists uh, or, or human architects or practical builders of all sorts of things. Uh, but he's also going to say that in the simplicity of the divine mind, the, the archetypes, they're the divine ideas. They're, they're those um, formal qualities. They're, they don't introduce division in God. They're really more about how we understand God, more about our language for God. They don't disrupt the divine simplicity. But, but in that simplicity, you have a kind of artistry in the um, production of things and in the governance of things. Okay, so this is a long-winded answer. <laughs> the answer is yes, but I think... In order for that to make sense, we have to first understand the human act itself as a, um, a kind of nested artistry, right? It, it is a proper artistry that is, according to that, that metaphor of the artist with the exemplar in his mind building a house, every moral act is kind of like that, right? Um, but that is nested within divine causality. So you have a kind of two-layered artistry, God's and ours, that every time we think or move or act, there's something potentially good going on there, right? Um, we'll say more about this tomorrow, but I, I think um, the goodness of the human act is, is measured according to the, um, the teleology of the nature itself. So at the end of whatever Aquinas talks about God uh, sustaining the creature and being and all that they've been given, and then sustaining human acts also, that um, the, the measure of the goodness of human acts is measured against the actual potentiality of that nature. What was in the original gift? You know, is this a uh, an accurate and meaningful perfection of the original gift, or is it something else? You know, <laughs> so um, 
at, at any rate, uh, even the, the fine arts or something like that, the production of art might not always have a moral quality to it in the sense that uh, it's morally good or bad or that it, it, it implies moral perfection or defect in the artist. Um, but uh, there's a parallel teleology there in, in any kind of production of an artifact by a human person because it involves a human moral act. So that, that's the connection that I would make there. But, uh, was, okay, let's see. So you mentioned here at the end something about Thomism not really just being history philosophy, but like a living tradition. Yeah, yeah. It seems like throughout a lot of these discussions, there's really an issue of, okay, postmodern philosophy says this, but we really got to get back to the classical distinctions. Okay, okay. Um, do you believe it's possible to really dialogue with the postmodernists in their own language? I think, you know, places like phenomenology where yeah, yeah, yeah. we're kind of rejecting Schopenhauer and saying, no, you can see the insights and the essences of things. Mm -hmm. um, without having to get them to agree specifically to Aristotle and the classical foundational concept? Is it possible to have that dialogue with them? That's a great question. And I would say this is a, uh, this is a long-standing um, conversation within 20th century Thomism. Like, how, how do you respond to modernity, right? Like, uh, do you just sort of double down, you know, and like uh, refuse to engage? Uh, do you take a more dialectical approach, particularly on those questions? As, as you may be aware, like um, Edith Stein, for instance, another she she's a little more statistic in some of her her inclinations, but let's say broadly scholastic uh, training. I mean, she's a, a student of, of Husserl, right? Um, I think, right? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, she, yeah. Um, so, anyway, so she's someone who would be very open to phenomenology. Uh, even Jacques Maritain, for instance, I mean, has an existentialist, what he calls a sort of existentialist account of epistemology which he sees as kind of a, a stopgap against, um, you know, some of the transcendental Thomists, uh, some of the Jesuits who are taking really a more sort of proto-Kantian approach to uh, knowledge of things or universals. Uh, so, you know, there's been a lot of different approaches. Um, I think, uh, and by saying all that, I don't mean to make Thomism sound eclectic or anything, because it, it's not, a, it is a principled discipline, but, um, so I, I would, uh, without getting into the weeds and the debates about epistemology or anything like that, uh, I, I think that um, actually a, a principled approach to Thomism, that, that is something which is founded in, um, in not just in study of texts or in, uh, that's really important. That's actually my graduate training was you know, heavy on that. <laughs> so you, you can learn a lot from that, but uh, an approach to, to um, uh, Thomism, which is, is centered around uh, the certain universal truths, right, that Aquinas has accurately identified, those you can actually almost always put into dialogue with other people because they're actual universals. It doesn't make it easy, but you can often form, you should be able to form some kind of dialectic, right, by identifying, um, you know, a, a, a loci, right, or, you know, a place, a place of departure for a conversation and having a conversation. Now, would, you know, that's either said than done. <laughs> So I do. I think it's possible to have conversations like that without compromising principles. And in fact, I think a robust understanding of the principles of Thomas can, can actually help. You know, uh, because otherwise you're just uh, you're left just sort of insisting in a more ideological sense on seeing things one way as opposed to another. Right? Is that is that helpful? Or, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well,